Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome to The Whole Truth from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Kurt Dupuis. And from the Bay Area, California, I am Steve Side. Dan, where are you coming from? I'm calling in from Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Dan, awesome to have you on here. This is going to be kind of a twofer episode where we'll put it out there on both platforms. If you remember why we created this podcast, it really started as kind of a value add for our clientele, which is financial professionals. And so as that has evolved over the last several years, what are we at? Almost 70 episodes. We continue to just kind of explore ways to bring content and ideas that are actionable to the folks that listen. So Dan, for those that may not be familiar, can you give us a quick synopsis of your podcast? Sure. I am the host and producer of the Internal Use Only Podcast, a podcast that is for financial professionals by financial professionals. Our core audience is wholesalers, those that are involved in the sales or distribution community for your lovely fun companies, much like the Touchstone Group here. And uh, it's also grown to now include a number of advisors and service providers who are all intertwined in this community that we call financial services. So we have many episodes that vary in topics. So we get to some fun stories and really unique perspectives on the show. Awesome. What we thought we would talk about today is something we'll call this or that, which are kind of the choices, decisions that one must make when working in financial services. So Dan, I know you've had a few people on the show recently, uh, for example, that have moved from wholesaling to financial advisors. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about your story from leaving the wholesaling world and going over to the fintech side, which is probably another fork in the road a lot of people are confronted with. And then we'll talk about wires, independence, different things that we see in those two cohorts. And then can't wait to hear this. Some perspectives from side talking about getting into management, being a just a total suit now <laughs> uh, versus an individual contributor like a wholesaler. So the decisions that went into those, painting the picture of what both sides were like when those forks in the road come. So let's just jump in. So Dan, I know you've had a few people on your show recently that have talked about the path going from wholesaler to financial advisor. And if any wholesaler is telling the truth, they've all thought about it. Yeah. I would say there's probably been about six episodes that I've had of the 54 that have been launched where the individual that I'm interviewing is currently an advisor and began their career as a wholesaler or spent a significant amount of time as a wholesaler. And it really is, a, it, it's so interesting because any wholesaler amongst their teams with people they've talked about, they're having what, thousands of meetings per year, compound that over how many calendar years, that is so much exposure to a specific role mm -hmm. that it's a natural transition for a lot of people to go from a sales role at an asset management firm to going over the fence to be an advisor as you know, a producer or joining a team for a group that they know fairly intimately for a role that they know pretty well and for a career path that's adjacent enough where you could use your skill set but move on to a fundamentally different role, which is going to be managing wealth on behalf of clients. You know, so talking to these people, did you find generally overall that they were happy with their decision? 
what are the pros and cons? What were the struggles? Did I make the right choice? Because because it is a leap. I mean, you take what in the wholesaling world, and I'm not speaking for every wholesaler position, but it's generally a pretty well compensated position. And you go over to the advisor side, you're probably given something up depending on the situation. So what kinds of things did you hear? Yeah, I think the the preparation or the thought process prior to exiting the wholesaling world was a common thread for all of the guests and all of the anecdotes, which was that those that seriously considered moving over and that did, they saved up for a while. And I can reference one recent guest of mine who was phenomenal. She was great. She was a wholesaler in California for almost for more than 10 years and then started at a new firm recently. And I, if I remember, I think she had almost a three year runway saved up where it was, you know, an intentional, obviously you're going to be losing that reliable income from the wholesaling route. And you are more or less starting small, right? You're not inheriting a book of business. You don't have a client list. So the preparation for that grind, at least from a dollars and cents standpoint, was was a very common theme. I know another individual I interviewed, She, I think she had a full year saved up. So there was some deliberate planning prior to making the switch. Where did most people land? So we're going to talk about wires and independence later. Did people tend to go to wires or independence? And, and I guess secondarily, are they doing it on their own? Or I, I'm assuming they're almost always joining a team, right? Mostly with the team and mostly to wires, at least from the very small sample of group individuals that I had interviewed. Interestingly, I also think that the knowledge of some of the operational functions are more relevant for someone who's at an RIA or a group that's more of a, let's call it a small business, where you can do things that aren't just potentially garnering new assets or raise, you know, bringing new clients on board, you're really helping out with some of the nuts and bolts of running the practice day to day. Did you cover um, like motivations, like why people made it? Like, what was it? Was it a simple career change? Was it, you know, tired of what's going, you know, being a wholesaler and what that entails? Like, what were the motivations? I, I found that for a few of the guests, there was definitely some kind of life event or some kind of factor that made them feel more confident that the advisor career path and lifestyle would be a little bit more stable or fulfilling going forward. Yeah. So working directly with people, which I I value, I appreciate that perspective because I like one of my favorite parts of the wholesaling world is you get to meet all these really incredible people and they're really impacting the lives of their clients. And I think if you experience, if you ever experience that from a wholesaler's point of view, you realize, wow, that would be pretty fulfilling and unique to be able to make help someone achieve goals in their life and oh, yeah. to be there for their significant life moments. But on the other side of it, I, I think that there's there's some degree of, of burnout almost of the, the wholesaler role that makes just saying, hey, I don't want to do this forever. It makes it an easier pivot. Arguably, I would say that was more applicable to some of the younger career folks that I interviewed where they were, let's say, between the ages of 30 and 35. And they realized that by the time they're 55, their, their career path isn't going to be as an external. Yeah, I am always telling newer people, like if we hire someone into, uh, you know, off the off our sales desk, for example, to be a wholesaler or newer wholesalers, like this is the long game. And I know everyone has sales goals to hit, but it is interesting how few people last a really long time as wholesalers in a job that should be, you know, a place that people want to hang out for a while. So that that's really interesting to me. But when you meet the wholesalers that have done it, I mean... They, to me, they've taken just the long-term perspective. They're not going to live and die by every month 
They're not going to get overly stressed out by, you know, what's happening in the markets or a product that's underperforming. So I guess I would say as a long-winded way of saying that some people just can't do it. And then, you know, that's a natural pivot to them would be to go over to that side. What I'm curious about though, is probably some very real survivorship bias here, but I'm assuming like you have people on your show, they're happy. They've been doing this well. Like they, they are happy with the decision looking kind of doing a postmortem. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're yes. And it, those groups that came on the train, they were almost making the transition like still early in their advisor careers. So part of the reason why they made a great guest for the show was we were having a real time discussion about what'd you consider? What are you still kind mm. of concerned about? Like, what are you hopeful about? What isn't like, what do you regret about leaving that path? And yeah, it's well, it's still raw, still raw, still raw. Mm-hmm. And then now some of these decisions too, all, which we will get to this when we talk about when my career path and, and where it's gone now, a lot of these decisions got made in a quite narrow window following a global pandemic, which changed a lot of people's yeah. thoughts and perspectives. So I think there still could be history written on good decision versus bad, but that's where we're at now. Just live evaluating all of this. Wait till we get into my decision of management versus wholesaling. We'll we'll get to that part when I. <laughs> and that I sucks. <laughs> Steve, I'll tell you what: the number of people that have asked for the podcast to cover that discussion of management versus still like external wholesaler. Oh, I can't wait. I, I've uh, I have so many questions for you, and I can't wait to hear that experience. I talk with side all the time, and I can't wait to hear this. So yeah, I'm, well, I'm pumped. I can only just say in my two sections, we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna cover the wires versus indies and the wholesaling versus management. These things are not straightforward. They're they're real decisions to be made. And so they're real cons and they're real pros. So anyways, I digress. We'll talk about that more later. If I could maybe bullet point a couple of the themes too that wholesalers shared as far as what the experience was like once they did cross over the fence to the advisor. I think these are interesting where from a prospecting and new business development standpoint, the ability to simply crush dials and look at the job as a 100% sales, sales role. Job, yeah. One of one of the guests, he shared that it was some of the advisors that's part of his new group. I think he went to a, a bank, if I remember correctly. They just weren't as, they didn't have the habit of just being able to wake up and say, I'm making 80 phone calls today, or I'm making 100 phone calls today. He was surprised though, that net new assets, which is a term that I think, or, or, or wholesalers helping advisors raise new assets, he was, he was assuming that that would be the only, only focus. And he realized as he became an advisor that no, there's a lot of time that's committed to client onboarding, to client service, to running operational functions that he as a wholesaler assumed that net new assets would be so much more. But as he got on the other side, he was realizing that there's things, you know, like lending that he's focusing on, other products, other, other services that are not just the investment management side of things. So his perspective there was pretty interesting. <laughs> what, what, what's the saying when you're hammer, everything's a nail. When you come from a sales background, like your, your job is mainly just sales. That makes sense that he would view the new role as only sales, not as much customer service and operational, like operationally wholesalers don't deal with that much as a financial professional. I'm sure there's meaningfully more operational stuff that you have to deal with. That world to me from not being an advisor looks like it's getting ever more complex, you know, to your point about, you know, the operations and doing things besides net new assets. It just seems like uh, there's a lot going on there. It's like a more complex job than it was 10, 20 years ago. At least, do you agree? I, I mean, disagree if you don't think so, but. 
That's the way I see it. When the, and then the bigger the firm that you're at, the more other external factors and goals and campaigns you're hit with. Yeah. So on top of running your own business, for sure. I feel like that almost might be a perfect transition into the independent versus wire <laughs> breakdown, just because, yeah, the yeah. I feel like the additional support and time committed largely has to do with what your broker dealer does provide or doesn't provide. And that varies pretty significantly. And are we viewing this from the salesperson's perspective or from the advisor's perspective? So here's how I tackled this. Cause I, I, I did a bunch of research. I talked to a lot of advisors over the past couple of, when I say a lot, probably the survey here is about 15, 20 people. And I didn't want to just go up to like people that were in a wirehouse and say, Hey, why are you in a wirehouse? And what do you think about independence? Like I wanted to get to people who had the decision to do one or the other, and I didn't want them to be new. So where did that lead me? It led to people that have actually left their firm, have were in a firm, and then had a decision to make. Am I going to go wirehouse or go independent? Because nowadays, you know, right or wrong, uh, recruiting is like the name of the game for all these managers and branch managers and COIs. Like their job is to recruit. So if you're an advisor, you're getting these calls all the time about, hey, come to my firm. And so what I wanted to know from these people is, which firm did you go to and why? What did you see as the pros or the cons? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Let me start with a couple of caveats right here. I know this could be a sensitive topic to people that are in the position of recruiting. First off, I'm not suggesting that anyone should move firms. Like That's something that anyone listening should do, right? If you want to do that, great. Um, this was a small sample size. I'm in San Francisco, just north of San Francisco. So understand that like the types of advisors that that I work with in here tend to be sort of, you know, big city oriented, which is probably different than some other areas. And so anyways, I'm going to share their perspectives. If you disagree, shoot me a note. I'm sure we won't get everything perfect. Okay. So the first thing that, that I want to say up front is sometimes you get the narrative in the industry like, oh, you know, 10 years in the future, the industry is going to all look like this. It's going to be 100% RIA, for example. Like, that's just one example. I love those spicy takes. We should all be robo-advisors by this point, if that logic yeah. stays true. So it, in no way, shape, or form did I get that from the discussions that I had, that it was like there was a dominant place to go. Quite the contrary. I actually found it was split pretty evenly from like independents and uh, and um, and wirehouses and things like that. And so when I say indies, I'm kind of lumping in regionals with that. So just think wirehouses versus everybody else. All right. Disclosure is over. So let's get into independence and kind of what drove people to go towards independence. The people that went there, they wanted to truly own something and they wanted freedom. They really wanted to be an owner versus an employee because at its very basic nature, you know, when you work at a large wirehouse, you're an employee. I mean, you still own but it's not the same as owning your own businesses in an independent shop. That's just by definition the case. Um, there's a lot of pros and cons that come with that, but that was a big driver. Um, some of that is the flexibility to work you know, when you want, where you want, how you want. They're much more of an entrepreneurial mindset, but not just as a business owner, but like what they wanted from their firm. So if you're at a wirehouse, you want their their ideas, their suggestions, their practice management, their all these things. You want those resources. Independence, it's not to say they don't want suggestions or whatever, but they're not really interested in what like a firm has to say. You know what I mean? The the other side of that is how many times have you talked to folks at bigger shops that were still fighting for resources? Yes. Like they, you know, or they thought they were gonna get a CSA or something and it's been six months and they're split between three different people. So that you know, that could 
be a double-edged sword that's kind of included in payout, but also like you have less say in that, how and when that gets executed. Yeah, I, I agree with you. This stuff, like I'm making these comments about, it's generally this, but of course, when you get under the hood, it's not always so black and white. But certainly that was part of it. I mean, you'll hear payout as well. That's another thing, right? I mean, you go independent, you're generally looking to get um, a higher higher payout, higher compensation. And the last thing that I, that I would say, there's a few more, but I'll keep it relatively simple, um, is selling implications. Um, I think that wirehouses are doing a good job to you know, find the next advisor for you and sell your book. But when you actually go into a true independent space uh, and be able to sell your book on the open market, like that's a different type of thing. So, and and they make it easy, right? Yeah. That, so that's that, it's it's the, it's like the level of entrepreneurship and the level of risk and potentially reward you're willing to accept. Like that's kind of the breakdown. Like the wires are fantastic. It's all like plug and play, ready to go, but. There's caveats to that, right? The, the cons are less control, probably smaller figure when you're looking to sell, like you know, challenge, challenges like that. Hiring and firing, you have less say. That's what you give up. I, I would be interested in discussing if the the big payouts that were associated with a lot of groups going independent in the last years, what that how sustainable that is, and yeah, you know, if if people who make the jump then kind of realize, well, I don't know if was the grass greener or is the grass greener, so definitely can banter on that as this conversation moves forward. Yeah. And it's really interesting you say that because it, it was a this or that between indies and wires. And I actually came up with a whole other one based on this conversation, which is to move or not move. And I don't know if we want to go there, but you know, I asked these people to reflect back on their decisions and they're going to tell you India why they're also going to tell you about what the move was like. So maybe we save that for an end. If there's time, I know we got a lot of material to get through. But wires, this is no particular order. I'm just reading bullets. Brand. So that's a big one. Um, these institutions have brand and it still matters to a lot of people. Yeah. It's not a zero for sure. This came up and I guess I didn't think I was going to hear this, but reflecting back on it, I'm like, well, duh. Like, why wouldn't this be part of the equation? People who went to wires wanted to be in rock solid, large institutions. They've been through periods where the financial system was teetering and they didn't feel necessarily comfortable going to something that wasn't a large institution. Look, we just dealt with this, right? With the, the small regional banks. You're an advisor working at one of these smaller institutions and all you're doing is reading about your firm every single day. We're going to exist or not to exist. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. At a minimum, it's going to be a huge headache for people reaching out to you. And at worst, you're going to find yourself at square one again if there's a, a serious crisis. So I think that, yeah, that brand stability, it's so easy to just say, oh, it would be, you know, you don't need the brand anymore. But then the more you're probably the further you are away from working at that brand, you might realize, man, there's a reason that it was so successful. You know, so we have portfolio managers that talk about brands and, and, and actually put numbers to what brands are worth. Can, can we have that done at the financial professional <laughs> yeah. level? Like what, what do you actually receive and benefit from the brand that's on the door? Because I honestly don't know, is that 2% or is it 25%? I have, I have no idea. I feel like that would also be a spicy question to lay out to the advisor community because you would, if you ask the question, what percentage of your new, your new clients in the last 10 years, do you think had a significant impact because of your brand? 
that one is very interesting because you'll yeah, get, that is you'll good. get, you'll, you know, like who, who's more important, the advisor or the brand? Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, you'd get a wide array of answers. We, we know the advisor is the most important. Like that's like hands down, that's the most important. It's hard to over exaggerate the amount of effort that goes into changing firms, right? Like oh, yeah. those first six months are brutal. I've heard time and time again. So, you know, whatever 10 year number you're looking like, because there are also growth numbers. It's not like you just like take business A, plug it into business B and, and you're good to go. Like there's, there's hurdles to hit along the way. You, you hear people working like they've never worked before just to transition firm. So that's a sticking point for a lot of people that just, it's a non-starter because I don't even want to want to go through that. I've got a lot of, to comment on what you just said, but we'll either, maybe we'll get to it on this episode. Maybe we won't, but you, what you said is exactly 100% correct. So I'll just run through three more bullets I have just on the wires, and then we can move on to another subject. Um, so uh, actually four more bullet points. Uh, it seemed to me that the the people that went to the wires they described as going after a pretty uh, a specific clientele, and in this case, sophisticated, ultra high net worth. Like you know, think about the people in San Francisco that are going after the the executives. They're going after the tech CEOs. Like they're like, I'm not going uh, after the the quote unquote average Joe. Yep. I have an upscale market. These platforms are going to provide more for that market. Therefore, I wouldn't consider going to to a different platform. And 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 I think that's a legitimate argument. I mean, there's there. Like in the alt space, I don't think every firm is created equally. No. So if like you do a lot of alts, it makes sense that you'd gravitate towards a, a certain firm and you might want, want to be like a boutique RIA. Like that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And on, on the, the, the subject of things that I think the wirehouses do pretty well, or at least was the perception is that they seem to have overall uh, better tech. It almost goes without saying that in any firm you go to now or the, the pitch for a firm, what they're going to say is, well, we've invested a ton of money in technology. Like they're all going to say it. And this particular person who I spoke to that the conversation stuck out to me on this subject, she was like, it was interesting to me how all the pitches or the overview of the technology when I was going through it with them looked almost identical. So like firm A and firm B, that tech demo looked almost the same. But once she got under the hood, she's like, the one thing I can recommend for people that are leaving is go under the hood and like really ask specific things about the technology. To her, it was clear that, you know, some of the wirehouses, you know, had an advantage on that front. So I'm sure there's people out there that would disagree, but that was the perception. Figuring out the tech stack is a meaningful effort. Um, so just, just Google Kitsis tech stack. It shows you like all the CRMs, all of the like AI tools, all the financial planning tools. Like there's literally tax hundreds of software, them. anything, tax management. yeah, you name it. It's And then how they all talk to each other. I mean, yeah, if you're building that from scratch, again, if you're entrepreneurial, like you like that, cool. There's a whole swath of people that don't want to mess with that. And so, and and yes, the, like the wires particularly spend a lot of money on technology. I, you know, it, I'm, it's not all ever perfect, but it is plug and play. Okay. I'll run through the last two quickly. You know, just so we talk about what entrepreneurship on the independent side, these people are not interested in picking office spaces, leases, personnel decisions, those kinds of things. I know there are resources on the independent side that could help, but that was one thing that was clear. Like, I just, I don't want to do that. And the last thing I thought it was interesting, this only came up once, but I thought this was worth mentioning. This person actually said, I actually like the big brother element. Like, I want somebody preventing me from doing something dumb. 
And that's really, <laughs> I thought it was worth mentioning. That's a very, very good perspective because I, one thing that I've learned now that I'm at a startup versus a big firm is that the environment can dictate how successful someone might be. In an unstructured environment, you need to really have structure. And for someone who was like, yeah, just be there lo looking over my shoulder, prevent me from being an idiot on my own. I, I love to hear that because <laughs> it just means that it, that system works for that person. Absolutely. Okay. What's the next this or that? I think we got to talk about you, Steve, and, and management versus external. I want to uh, hear you though first. So you were on our side of the world. I was on the wholesaling side for just, just shy of seven years. The last two of those, I was an external. And about two years into that, I made a, a career pivot to working at a series A financial technology company. It was probably the only job that I looked at where if I, if I saw who I was selling to and what I was selling, it would have been a, a pretty significant overlap of skills and experiences as opposed to abandoning all the work that I did, all the things that I learned in those six years as a wholesaler. But wow, is it a, a different world and a different structure and it's, it, it's definitely been fun. But as far as this or that theme goes, after two years of doing the FinTech job, there's a lot of reflections on you know, the, what was gained, what were opportunity costs. And I think that will be interesting to cover here in this discussion. Why did you decide to leave in the first place? Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. The impact of COVID, I think, had a large influence on that. I started that external role on February 21st, 2020. And my very first full Ouch. week of calendar, <laughs> yes, yeah, so as, as a wholesaler, as a wholesaler, your golden goose is to have a full calendar, right? Like you want it to Monday through Friday, meetings with clients, prospects. That first calendar that was completely full and booked that I was the most pumped for was March 9th of 2020. That's so brutal. Which in the Northeast, that was when New York City and everything else officially closed down. So uh. I was mostly working out of my apartment as an external. We did let go of our internals. And that experience was just, it was like two years of being pandemic, not no one in office. I could barely see clients. That I think absolutely had an impact on it. Yeah, but at course. its core, while we spent so much time working remotely, I started to just realize that I was more interested in potentially having more impact on a growing team and a, and a business that was still developing. And that's what led me more towards that earlier stage startup. And I was fortunate, very fortunate that I found that role and it was the right fit and that it has worked out. I, I know peers of mine that similarly left external that it didn't work out when they went to join a growing company. So I have been very, very fortunate. But a lot of it had to do, I think, with just matching, like being involved with more. Uh, the sales that I'm making are having a pretty significant impact to our company's ARR, which is effectively our growth metrics. And so I, I found that to be a nice change of pace. So COVID and really being able to connect more with a mission um, not just a job, but that th those were two big aspects for you. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting with like a mission because it's not like we're a nonprofit where we wake up every day and it's like, this is, this is what fuels me. But maybe I can describe some of the things that I'm doing today that I don't believe I would have had as an opportunity as an external role, at least in the capacity that I did at my prior role. And that is leading and training a group of individuals that are formed, like starting their career as SDRs, which in our world to be the equivalent of an internal. So I get to be more of a player coach right now, which is fantastic. And the new clients that we're bringing on are a lot of them are completely new to this kind of technology. 
And it's a lot of the groups, uh, it, it, groups that I had worked with in the past, which is a really unique lens. So getting them to understand how the software can be used, training them on it. It's, I think it's like a lot of the coaching aspects and working with people element, yeah. I really get to be involved with. And I'm seeing the direct result of that effort. Whereas sometimes as a wholesaler, it was always, I would always just be a third party to a decision that was ultimately being made by somebody else. It makes a ton of sense. This past year was a big stress test for a number of groups. And I, I almost feel like there was this allure and maybe a, a false sense of grandeur with going on to a tech company because of what happened in the last 15 years with low rates and all these crazy high exits. It was like, yeah. if, if I could make a parallel, it'd be like joining as a, as, as a wholesaler like 25 years ago at a company that was just booming and everybody made a ton of money early in their State career, dinners right? and slicks, <laughs> baby. Exactly. Like all of these big now publicly traded fintech companies were kind of like that. So if there was any caution I would throw to the wind is realizing that it's a much longer time horizon than people think and your equity options might not amount to anything. So that's like a huge risk that you don't deal with when you're at a stable, well-respected firm that's been around for multiple, multiple years. Well, let's move over to Mr. Saad um, and talk about staying in asset management, but deciding to move from an individual contributor to being a suit. I feel like this is so built up now. I didn't realize <laughs> anyone actually wanted to hear about this. I think if you talk to managers and organizations like divisionals that were wholesalers prior, I think they will all say the same thing, like that there are things that are great about both jobs. So I think the first thing that I would say for people that are thinking this through is how much do you really like being a wholesaler? And I say that because even successful wholesalers, even ones that are like consistently top at the firm, you, you've met some that just like really don't seem to like their day to day, right? Oh, yeah. And some that absolutely love it. Like, like they can't imagine can't ima anything right. else. And that is so clear. Yeah. Dan, did you saw that in your firm as well? I'd offer a parallel, like great athletes, not all great athletes, like the best in their sport. Some like when they're done, they retired. They're like, I don't you love, like I'm never, I'm never picking up, you know, my, my, my cleats or my gloves, like insert your equipment there. They yeah. just, they did it. It served them well. They were means talented, to an end. but it's a means to an end. It's not like they don't love it. Yeah. That, that's a great analogy because if you're someone that like does the job, you're doing well, but you don't really love it, then considering management becomes a whole lot easier, relatively easy decision. I loved being a wholesaler. Loved it. As not everything's perfect. No job is. But I think that's the one thing that complicated for me a little bit was how much I actually like that job. So that's the first thing I'd say. So let me get into, if I can, I think the pros and cons of a wholesaler. And obviously you guys can both contribute to this part of the equation as well. Um, I got you. From a pro, if now I'll say, if you're at a good firm with a good boss and a good territory, this is mostly true what I'm about to say. It, it's pure freedom. You know, when I was a wholesaler and I was running the Bay Area, the only, I got calls from my boss, of course, the usual, but it was just like, how can I help you? Outside of that, like, no one really messed with me too much. Like I was doing, I'm sure Kurt, you probably feel the same way at, at our firm, right? Keep your numbers good and people lay off of you as a general rule. That's, that's definitely the case here. Yeah. It may not be the case at other firms, Dan, I'd welcome your perspective on that. But for us, it's like, yeah. If I, if I can give a shout, uh, Greg Murphy, who hired me at my external role, unbelievable individual, appreciate everything he did for my career. He was a very hands-off manager. And that was the first I ever had in my entire career. So I almost, I was almost like spooked because <laughs> of how little I needed to make updates. And even sometimes I'd put time on the calendar to chat and he's like, 
I feel like we're good. Like, did we need to have an update? And I was like, nah, so just, I'm like, this is just past programming. But no, yeah, I mm-hmm. completely agree. Completely agree. But some don't do well with that. Uh, I mean, some people like like a lot of feedback. They really want to like chew the cud on how you're doing things. And yeah, I, I mean, you described it as pure freedom, but some people don't work well with that. The pro is that freedom. And, you know, the firm can suggest all kinds of things, but it's really like your call to make. It's your business, you know, make no mistakes about it. It may be Touchstone and Steve Side covering Touchstone in the Bay Area, but it's Steve Side's business. That franchise, you know, is with you. So there's that ownership element uh, and that freedom element that I think is really, really amazing about wholesaling. My previous shop, when I was moving to external, I remember traveling with a guy in Florida who had been down there like two decades, knew everybody and it just seemed like the greatest job in the world. And the the story that really crystallized it for me, he had grown up in that territory down there and was legitimately like friends with a lot of the advisors right. in, in his dirt. He would vacation with them, go skiing together. So I was like, oh, wait, it's, it's, okay. So you have the autonomy, you're making good money. Like you, you actually like these people and are spending your own time with them. Like what else could, could you ask for? A hundred percent agree. If I were to do a, like a regret column or a what if column, it would be exactly that. It was looking at it as the equivalent of being like a rookie wholesaler. It was still my first two years as an external. There were so many people that I met that were awesome. And I always, I, I, I have in the back of my mind, like, well, what if I did that for five, 10, 15 years? You know, like what was the opportunity cost of all those awesome people that I don't interact with day to day now? Listen, I don't want to make you feel regret, but there that is real what you experience. Like the first few years of wholesaling is unequivocally the hardest. Like, and that is a real thing. And you had to do it during the worst time. I can't imagine how difficult that was. But you're right. The longer that you do, it becomes, you know, a very, very different type of job. Um, so, anyways, in terms of cons, though, of course there are cons. Like there's there's pressure to sell. Um, there is a grinding it out mentality of getting up out the door. You better make sure your calendar's full. I'm not somebody who like randomly knocked on doors when I was doing a walkthrough. Like that's not me, but you still got to figure out interesting ways to like meet people and connect with new people and all that stuff. You know, there can be challenging priorities with management. You know, there could be territory cuts. There could be unreasonable goals. Um, You know, I've even heard the story, which I found fascinating. And again, I hope I don't offend anybody, but I was talking to a friend of mine who went to a different firm and they were like, we have this algorithm right? We've built this algorithm. I laughed just saying it. It tells us exactly the people in your territory that you should be speaking with. And you could only speak to those people. Like I laugh so, because you can't do that. Like sometimes management thinks that like they can solve for what wholesaling is and you can't. I would get burned out of that. I mean, that's because you're right, like there's there's plenty of science to wholesaling, but there's a ton of art as well. So being being told, and I and I know I know those firms. We've all heard those firms. Like they tell you literally, you wake up in the morning, they tell you where to go, who to see, what time to see them. No thanks. That's the opposite of that freedom that we discussed. I do want to make a nod to just all corporate initiatives out there, whether you're an advisor <laughs> or a wholesaler. Just when when they, when they get you get to the all sales meeting or whatever, and it's presented of of like here's what you're going to do, and then here's what the impact is. Then you have an audience of externals or advisors just rolling their eyes, wondering whether or not it's going to be effective. That is just, everyone's experienced that. And I I hope we've all had some good examples where the tools have surprised us and what they can deliver. But also I hope that everybody has had that one where it's just a complete flop and just wasn't going to work just based on what the reality of the job is. Shout out to firm initiatives. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing I could say is just, 
you know, a support staff for your role as an external can be a little bit of a challenge. If you have a good internal, they don't tend to last. You could have chain over changing and, 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 and that becomes a problem because it's like, you know, who do you actually allow to speak with your advisors because are they going to be there? And so all these things I think, I think are challenges. It's a big challenge. All right. You guys ready for pros and cons with management? Cause I think that's what everyone's most interested in. Um, all right, let's go. All right. So, so, so the pro is if you really do like, like leadership, like you get going from taking a wholesaler and making them better because you have some vision uh, of how they can do things a little bit better. If like, that's the thing that drives you, then management is a very, very cool thing to do. It's like, so if you're a former wholesaler, you go in there and you could say, okay, I did these things. I learned these things. Now I can take these things and help people avoid some of the mistakes that I have, or, you know, do things just a little bit better. So for me, a lot of that is the practice consulting work, the practice management work that that I did. So if I could take that and then make our folks better at being able to do that, like that is something that generally, you know, gets me going. Like it probably is an awesome thing for you in your role now if you were to work with an internal help with some coaching and planning and then get see them through to their external role. Like that'd be a very satisfying career experience or, or career nod for that year for you. Yeah. The internals is an interesting perspective because they're newer in the industry by definition. And then we just say, okay, you know, now you have an external job, like go get it, work with somebody who's been in the industry for 30 years, you know, and sell to them. And it's just like, they're talented, wonderful people that can do it, but it's a big leap. Like that's not an, it's a tough job. It's not an easy thing to do, especially because what we talked about where wholesalers don't always stay in the same roles forever. So you're the 80 millionth wholesaler that they've seen you know, over their careers. So anyways, you get the point. There is, there is, you know, and so to be able to help someone through that, Dan, I, I agree with you. Um, I still meet people in territory that knew wholesalers from like 15, 20 years ago. I touched yeah. It's hilarious. I, I know. They'll be like, they probably couldn't, they, they, don't, they could not tell you who I am, but they know <laughs> someone from 15 years ago. You know, the second thing I'd say pro is you really are still driving revenue. I, I think that there are, um, there's multiple kinds of managers and multiple ways that you can approach this job as, as a divisional, um, as a divisional, you could really kind of take a step back and just say, Hey, I'm going to manage wholesalers. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the human resources stuff and I'm going to run the calls and I'm going to run my sales meetings and do, you know, that, or you could say, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to be really involved in the nitty gritty. I'm, I'm going to help pave the way for wholesalers. I'm going to be talking to COIs. I'm going to be in certain meetings where I could add value to those uh, FAs. There's nothing right or wrong with either approach. But for me, I think you could probably guess which side I am. Like, I want to be close to set closer. Think about of a continuum, like closer to the home office meeting or closest to sales. Like if that's the continuum, I want to be closer to sales. That's just my perspective. But, you know, that's a choice you have to make. The word you always talked about was sh- like strategy. Like, like what's what's the strategy? I want to build strategy. I want to be able to think strategically. Um, and, and I think I, that's, that's probably a big reason you were drawn to it is having a seat at the t- that table. Yeah. And that's, you know, you're, and that's the other thing. So, okay. I talk about the revenue side, but it's exactly what you just said. Well, you can, um, shape things at the firm level and have a voice. And I, I found myself a lot, you know, wanting to give voice in particular areas as a wholesaler and they would listen, but I mean, to really, you know, sit in the rooms where, um, where decisions are being made and being able to to influence those decisions to some degree. Listen, I'm not the CEO. I'm not the head of distribution. Um, there's a lot of players in, in that make these decisions, but it's nice to be able to have a voice 
But that requires that you want the voice, you have a vision, you have opinions on what that should look like. I I, I happen to be, Colonel Giggle, when I say this, I happen to be an opinionated person. So it's, it's hard for me not to, you know, to just be like, okay, this is how things run. Okay, fair enough. You know? Take the boy out of Jersey. <laughs> There's more value in that, in like filling in the gaps between what's happening in the home office and what the externals are out there experiencing. I mean, it can be a little bit of an island and like lack of- Or filtering in yeah, some cases. And, and fil- yeah, and filtering in some cases. So I can, it's, that was probably lost on me as an internal, but then as an external, you kind of realize that like to have somebody who does care about that, like Steve is describing, to be able to help connect the dots on like, what are these strategic initiatives? Why are these things that you're hearing impacting you? And then together, let's go, let's go make this a good way to incorporate these out in the field. I think that is really, really helpful. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredibly valuable. I, when I was an internal, our team was mostly in San Francisco. And I remember on day one, uh, my, my external who awesome guy, we're still friends today. He was like, I, I really appreciate knowing what's going on at, at the office, at the home office. So every other Friday, I would just send him an, a blurb that was like from the home office. And it was snippets of conversations I had or topics we covered in our all sales meetings that maybe he wouldn't have seen. And he randomly enough, always still, he'll still mention that he was like, that was just all I needed to feel connected to the team. Yeah. Yeah, that that's huge. But just you know, the comment on being able to shape things—it's also being able to 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 bring things to the table and, and changing it at the firm level. And and I I put him a bullet on this: the podcast. Well, I started a podcast as a wholesaler, so it's not just as a divisional. But now as a divisional, what I'm able to do is to take some of the things that we've done with the show and make them available at the firm. So now, for to give you two examples. We have guests that have been on the show that are now going to be consultants with us and working with us. We have things like Colby analysis. We brought that in. So, so anyways, there's things like that. So let me get to the cons. An easy con is just a lot more travel. I mean, you think you travel a lot as a wholesaler? Try going, traveling with all of your people, going to your home office meetings, speaking at conferences. All of a sudden, I'm like on airplanes a lot more these days. Uh, <laughs> we could laugh all at right. that. It's a con. It's not a con, right? I, well, I hope anyone that's in these roles can... Travel is exhausting. You get bits of energy from it. But objectively, when you look at a schedule that has so many travel gaps, it can be like, oh boy, this will be a grind. Oh Doesn't no. Doesn't mean you don't love it, but it's, there, it's a grind. A, there's a 100% of balance there. I don't want to be home 100% of the time. My wife certainly doesn't want me home 100% of the time, right? We can all agree with uh, that. But I, my giggling was <laughs> this next one. And I just wrote, some home office meetings drive me crazy. <laughs> this is another one that I think is real. And I think this is something, again, the further you get away from from the sales, this happens. The politics, the this is my territory stuff. We're lucky at Touchdown that we're not like some other firms. But but I, I guess what I would say is as a salesperson, so this is like wholesalers that are considering going to management, you're going to have very low sensitivity for that. Because the truth is when you're a wholesaler, there's nowhere to hide. Your sales are your sales, your territory, your territory, right or wrong, it's yours. And so when you get into management, those kinds of things, I think, have the potential, at least to me, to be a little bit, I think, you know, rub you the wrong way. I think you and I are very similar in how we we think about that role. So I can only imagine how. <laughs> yeah. How, how I would do in some of those circumstances, which is I, I'm, I'm not good wasting time. Yeah. I thought I avoided some of that by going to a, a, a startup small group. It was, I was, I think I was a 29th employee. Now we have like 65 
And we, for a while, we avoided those exact meetings. But now that we have a larger team, I'm like, oh no, I've become, I have become what I said I would never become. So you're a suit now, Dan? <laughs> Look uh, at him. Dan's a suit too? It's hard, hey, hard to say suit because now that I'm at a fintech company, you know, the, the, I, I know. the, the attire is so much different. So you're a hoodie? You're, you're yeah, a hoodie? Yeah, like, yeah, hoodie like in uh, the show on HBO. What's that one with uh, Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> yeah. But no, I have those standing meetings and I'm like, oh no, even I hate myself for having to facilitate this right now. <laughs> yeah, I... One way you could look at a decision to go to divisional is divisional is higher than a wholesaler. It's a period where the wholesalers report up to the divisional. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. And I actually think as a firm, the wrong way to look at it is anything of that your salespeople, your wholesalers, the people that have the relationships that are in the field that are driving the revenue are the top of the pyramid, period. And that's not to say we don't have to manage them. It's not to say that we can't give initiatives that make them better. Of course, that's our job. But if you start to look at them lower than you or, hey, you know, that mentality. Nobody wants that. Yeah. I, I just think, you know, I think that's the, for me, that's the wrong way to look at it. And so anybody considering this job to just, um, you know, I, that would be my suggestion is to look about it, look at it that way. I used to work for a guy that said, there's two jobs at this company. It's, it's those that run the money and those that sell the running of the money. <laughs> those are the two jobs. Everything else is ancillary. So um, anyways, those, those are a few. I could go on on these for a while. So if you guys have any other questions, let me know. But yeah, th those are the pros and cons. Um, the divisional, though, it really is a wonderful role. It's a way, you know, it, 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 you can be close to, to driving sales, the revenue, but also have, uh, you know, the impact on the firm level and things like that. So I think it is a great role, but I think wholesaling is a great role too. So my conclusion is there's no wrong decision. If you're at to me, it's like, are you at the right firm? Do you have a good product to sell? Is there a good culture? Once you get those things taken care of, whether you're a wholesaler or divisional, I think you should be in, you know, there's no, there's not a bad choice is the, what I would say. Yeah. All ebbs and flows of individuals careers, which is why we thought this would be a fun discussion because yeah. most of our audience has probably had some of these belaboring pros and cons conversations about each of these situations. Right. And yeah. We're, we're so fortunate to be in this career path and in this industry where not only do you have those opportunities, but by making one of them, it's not like you're permanently going to be at a different you know, status or something like that. Like even, even with my job hop, more of a lateral compensation switch. I do have a, a, a FOMO, if you will, of that massive career year that externals have, but I'm still, I still have my seven licenses. Yeah. I'm able to have that updated through FINRA and I get to interact with so many awesome people through the podcast that I don't feel like I'm fully detached from it. No. And that's a wonderful blessing of this industry. So even if we vent and we, I say, fill up the hate tank about certain roles and stuff every now and then, like <laughs> this is part of our, our lives and our community. And it's totally okay that we were able to, hopefully it's fun that we documented some of that today. Yeah. Well, it's a, that's what I love the most about it is a generation before this couldn't have existed because of technology, because of culture, because everyone was so siloed. I mean, who, who knows at any point in their educational career, they want to get into wholesaling. No, no, no one, one, zero, nobody. If you're saying that you're lying, but we've all found it one way or the other. And so like to be able to kind of like shine a light on the different paths, the different decisions, pros and cons and different ways to think about it, I, I think is great because the industry needs more illumination. Dan, I got to tell you, and I know Kurt feels the same way. We are huge, huge fans of your show. Um, love listening to it. Love what you do. This is our second cross-promotional episode, and we were excited to do it because uh, 
because your show is great and so are you. So thanks for doing it with us. Thank you so much. Anyone that's listening can find us on Instagram at internal use only podcast. And the feeling is mutual. I love your show. love the episodes. Keeps me sharp. And I look forward to a future where maybe we're collaborating on some kind of uh, in-person event that will serve the needs of our mutual audiences. I love it. The whole truth meets internal use only. Love it. Anyways, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash thewholetruth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash thewholetruth. All one word. RIA is an acronym for Registered Investment Advisor. ALT is short for alternatives, also known as alternative mutual funds, which hold non-traditional investments or use complex investment and trading strategies. SDRs is an acronym for sales desk representatives. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. This commentary is for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com slash resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing.